Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 44, and the 52nd episode of this weekly podcast. So, regardless of if you live in a country on the metric or the imperial system, the conclusion of this episode marks the one-year anniversary of the series. More on that later. Last week, I wrapped up the history of Damascus. If you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm going back to Genesis, and working through a few chapters to get to our next subject, namely Moab. So let's get started. When I last left the Old Testament, I covered how Abraham pursued Lot's kidnappers into Syria and past Damascus, as found in Genesis 14. Which brings us to Genesis 15. The end of this chapter has many historical references Specifically, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Repium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Some of these I previously covered, some will be covered in the future, and some are so mysterious, no one has of yet quite figured out who they actually refer to. But none of these are this week's topic. Chapter 16 is the story of Hagar and Ishmael, and mentions Kadesh, Barad, Egypt, and Canaan. Kadesh has been tangentially covered, and I will go into as much depth as possible soon. But, there's not much history available, so I'll couple it with the history of another, yet-to-be-determined area. No one is really sure where or what the Bered is, so I'm forced to skip that one. Egypt is coming, and most definitely in a multi-part episode, and Canaan, well, it was covered many weeks ago. In chapter 17, Abram gets a name change to Abraham. Sari also gets a name change to Sarah. There is a new sign of the covenant between him, his descendants, and God. If you don't know what that sign is, you should read the chapter. Of course, I could cover the history of that procedure, But I'm choosing not to. Maybe, if I ever run out of things to talk about, then I'll do a supplemental episode. Chapter 18 is the narrative of God's promise of a son to Abraham, this time through his wife. Then there is the story of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, which I covered several weeks ago. This story continues into chapter 19. At the end of chapter 19 is the first mention of Moab, the subject of this week's episode. Moab is the traditional name for a mountainous tract of land located in what is now the country of Jordan. The land lies to the east of the Dead Sea. The historical existence of the kingdom of Moab is attested to by many archaeological finds, most notably the Mesha Stone, which describes a Moabite victory over an unnamed son of a king it names as Omri of Israel. Now for a not-so-short sidebar on the Mesha Stele. The Mesha Stele is an inscribed stone probably commissioned by the king of Mesha of Moab. It was inscribed in the Phoenician alphabet. Many episodes ago, I covered other steles, and at the time I pronounced it steel because, well, that's essentially how it's written. But there is an alternative pronunciation, and that is stele. Both are acceptable, but one is far more fun to say. And that's the one I will be using. 
and you can bet that if a stele is ever discovered in Dan, Israel, I will be using the pronunciation there too. Now for the history. The stone is believed by many to have been discovered intact by Frederick Augustus Klein, an Anglican missionary, at the site of what is now Daban, Jordan. In ancient times, the city was referred to as Daban, which is pronounced exactly the same, but spelled significantly different. These cities are also on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. The stone itself was discovered in August 1868. Klein was led to it by a local Bedouin, but neither he nor the Bedouin could read the text. To be clear, there is some dispute concerning who actually discovered the stone, with other sources claiming it was Charles Warren. Whichever, the name of the discoverer is not why I'm covering Moab, or the stone itself. The Meshastili is the most verbose Iron Age inscription ever found in the region. As such, it constitutes the major evidence for the Moabite language. The stele is a smooth chunk of basalt, approximately 39 inches or 1 meter tall, 2 feet or 60 centimeters wide and thick. The surviving pieces are covered in 34 lines of prose. At the time of its discovery, the stone was described as being in, quoting, a most perfect state of preservation, not one single piece being broken off and it was only from great age and exposure to rain and sun that certain parts, especially the upper and lower lines, had somewhat suffered." End quote. This unbroken state, though, was not to last. In November 1869, just over a year after its discovery, the stele was damaged by the local Bedouin tribe, specifically the Bani Hamada, after the Ottoman government became involved in the dispute concerning the ownership of the stone. This was after, in the previous year, the Banani Hamada had been defeated by an expedition of the Walai of Damascus. The Bedouins were then made aware that the ruling Ottoman government had ordered the stone turned over to the German consulate. The pressure from the Ottomans was coupled with other territorial rulers hassling them for the artifact. So, they resorted to what many people do. If I can't have it, nobody can. They heated the stele in a bonfire, threw cold water on it, and then broke it into pieces by pounding it with stones and eventually boulders. Fortunately, what is known as a squeeze, aka a papier-mâché impression, of the full stele had been obtained just prior to its destruction. But obtaining this squeeze was not without incident, either. A French archaeologist named Ganau knew of the squeeze, but in his own words, did not want to venture to undertake the very costly and dangerous journey. So what did he do? He sent an Arab man named Jakob Karavaka to obtain the squeeze for him. But Karavaka was injured by the local Bedouins while obtaining the squeeze. Fortunately, one of his two accompanying horsemen protected the squeeze by tearing it, while it was still down, from the stone in seven fragments. He then escaped with the squeeze. Later, pieces of the original stele, at least the parts containing most of the inscription, specifically 613 letters out of what is estimated to have been a thousand, were recovered and pieced together. The balance of the stele was reconstructed by Ganau from the squeeze attained by Caravaca. The squeeze, 
and the reassembled stele are now part of the Louvre Museum, but the country of Jordan has demanded its return. I'll post a picture of the stele on the podcast Facebook page. So what does the stone read? Well, there is no single interpretation that is completely agreed upon by archaeologists, but they are all close enough to each other for the purposes of this podcast. It's also short enough that I'll quote the text. As translated by James King, not to be confused with King James, in 1878. The text reads, I am Mesha, son of Shadmashgad, king of Moab, the Debonite. My father reigned over Moab thirty years, and I have reigned after my father. And I have built this sanctuary for Shemash in Karaka, a sanctuary of salvation, for he saved me from all aggressors, and he made me look upon all my enemies with contempt. Omri was king of Israel, and oppressed Moab during many days, and Shemash was angry with his aggressions. His son succeeded him, and he also said, I will oppress Moab. In my days, he said, Let us go, and I will see my desire upon him in his house. And Israel said, I shall destroy it forever. Now Omri took the land of Madeba and occupied it in his day, and in the days of his son, forty years. And Shemash had mercy on it in my time. And I built Bamiyan, and made therein the ditch. And I built Kiriathim. And the men of Gad dwelled in the country of Ataroth from ancient times, and the king of Israel fortified Ataroth. I assaulted the wall and captured it, and killed all the warriors of the city, for the well-pleasing as Shamash and Moab. And I removed from it all the spoil, and offered it before Shamash in Kirjath. And I placed therein the men of Saran, and the men of Makroth. And Shamash said to me, Go take Nebo against Israel. And I went in the night, and I fought against it from the break of day till noon, and I took it. And I killed in all seven thousand men, but I did not kill the women and maidens, for I devoted them to Ashtar Shemash. And I took from it the vessels of Jehovah, and offered them before Shemash. And the king of Israel fortified Jehaz, and occupied it. And when he made war against me, and Shemash drove him out before me, and I took from Moab two hundred men in all, and placed them in Jahaz, and I took it to annex it to Daban, and I built Kracha the wall of the forest, and the wall of the hill, and I have built its gates, and I have built its towers, and I have built the palace of the king, and I have made the prisons for the criminals within the wall. And there were no wells in the interior of the wall of Kracha, and I said to all the people, Make you every man a well in this house. And I dug the ditch for Karacha with the chosen men of Israel. And I built a rower, and I made the road across the Arnon. And I took Beth Bamoth, for it was destroyed. And I built Bezer, for it was cut down by the army of the men of Dabon, for all Dabon was now loyal. And I reigned from Bikron, which I added to my land. And I built Beth Gamul and Beth Deb Lathim, and Beth Balaam Mion. And I placed there the poor people of the land. And as to Haranim, the men of Edom dwelt there, and on the descent from old. And Shemash said to me, Go down, make war against Haranim, and take it. 
and I assaulted it, and I took it, for Samash restored it in my days. And unfortunately, the stele ends there in fragments, with no real conclusion. The Mesha stele serves as the primary evidence for the Moabite language and a unique document of military campaigns. It is thought that the stele was placed at a sanctuary for Kamash in Quarho, Mesha's capital and citadel. It thanks Kamash for his aid against Mesha's enemies. Kamash is recognized for his significant role in the victories of Mesha. The belief that the many construction progress would have taken at least several years to complete implies that the inscription was made long after the military campaigns, and the narrative of those campaigns reflects a story such that it presents the king as the obedient servant of their god. The king also asserts himself to be acting in the national interest by eliminating the Israelite occupation and restoring previously lost lands. However, a different interpretation leaves it uncertain whether all the conquered territories were previously Moabite. In fact, in three campaign narratives, there is no explicit reference to prior Moabite control. Now this is where it gets interesting, and why I took the time to explore this tangent in a great deal of detail. The Steely's inscription seems to match a part of 2 Kings chapter 3. For reference, I'll work through that short section specifically starting at verse 4 and running through the end of the chapter, from the New Revised Standard Version. Now King Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder who used to deliver the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out against Samaria at the time and mustered all of Israel, and when he sent word to King Jehoshaphat of Judah, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go down with me to battle against Moab? He answered, I will. I am with you. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. Then he asked, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. And when they had made a roundabout march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that were with them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has summoned us, three kings, only to be handed over to Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the servants of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, is here. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to your father's prophets or to your mother's. Which was a really gutsy thing to say to the king. Back to the text. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has summoned us, three kings, only to be handed over to Moab. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, whom I serve, were it not that I have regard for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would give you neither a look nor a glance, but get me a musician. 
you should really read your Bible. These details of the stories are really interesting and somewhat random. And then, while the musician was playing, the power of the Lord came on him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this wadi full of pools, for thus says the Lord, You shall see neither wind nor rain, but the wadi shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your cattle, and your animals. This is only a trifle in the sight of the Lord, for he will also hand Moab over to you. You shall conquer every fortified city and every choice city. Every good tree you shall fell. All springs of water you shall stop up. And every good piece of land you shall ruin with stones. The next day, about the time of the morning offering, suddenly water began to flow from the direction of Edom until the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn upon at the frontier. When they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. They said, This is blood. The kings must have fought together and killed one another. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and attacked the Moabites, who fled before them. As they entered Moab, they continued the attack. The cities they overturned, on every good piece of land, everyone threw a stone until it was covered. Every spring of water they stopped up, and every good tree they felled. Only at Kirheseth did the stone walls remain, until the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through, opposite the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to secede him, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Essentially, the narrative in the Old Testament is where Jehoram of Israel makes an alliance with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and an unnamed king of Edom, which was south of Judah. This alliance was created in order to put down his rebellious subject Misha. The three kings conduct a successful campaign until Mesha, in despair, sacrifices what is believed to be his eldest son to his unnamed god. Apparently, this sacrifice changes his fortune and there came great wrath against Israel. With this, Mesha apparently achieves victory. It is this similarity that leads the stele to be dated to about 840 BC. And when the two stories are put side by side, it's easy to see how the two can be the same story from two different perspectives. The stele provides unique information on the Moabite language and the political relationship between Moab and Israel during the 9th century BC. Currently, it is the most extensive inscription ever recorded that refers to the Kingdom of Israel, in it referred to as the House of Omri. The stone also presents the earliest definite extra-biblical reference to the Israelite god Yahweh. And maybe, at least according to French scholar André Lamar, the earliest mention of the House of David in this case called the Kingdom of Judah. 
It is one of four known same-era inscriptions containing the name of Israel, the others being the Merenepto Stele, the Tel Dan Stele, and the Kirk Monolith. Tel Dan Stele, Stele Dan, Shakespeare, Psalm 49, Coincidence? Anyway, the stele is generally regarded as genuine by most biblical archaeologists, primarily because there is no other known inscriptions of comparable age. Of course, like most things in life, not everyone agrees. Thomas Thompson, formerly a professor at the University of Copenhagen, believes that the inscription on the stele is not historical, but is instead an allegory. Either way, its age is not in dispute. Also, as is common knowledge even today, you can't believe everything you read. Back to Moab. Actually, back to Moab in next week's episode. You don't want to miss it. Despite my best efforts, I did get a little off topic today with the history of the Meshastili. But, if you made it through 52 episodes, I hope that you have come to accept these tangents. Maybe this will be the week that you go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Every time you do, it helps the next listener discover the podcast. Many thanks to Faith Parko 2 for the review you left a little over a week ago. You made my day. Actually, you made my week. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.